Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and I'm excited to talk to our guest today. Allison Miller is a Saskatoon-born flautist. She received tenure in 2020 and now holds the Randy Nelson Chair of Principal Flute with the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra. In her short time with the SSO, Allison has been highly featured as a musician, regularly presenting concerti and solo works for flute and orchestra. These works include Bach's Brandenburg Concerti Numbers 2 and 5, Vivaldi's Concerto in F Major, Devienne's Concerto for Flute and Orchestra, Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn, and Summer's Picasso Suite. Allison is thrilled to appear as the guest soloist for the premiere of Up to Her Waist in Lupins by Canadian composer Christos Hatzis. This featured performance is scheduled for fall 2022 in memory of the SSO's beloved principal flute emeriti, Randy Nelson. Allison completed a diploma in music at the Victoria Conservatory of Music, studying with Richard Volley. She went on to complete both a Bachelor of Music and a Master of Music, specializing in performance at the University of Ottawa, studying with Camille Churchfield. Allison has appeared numerous times as both a flautist and piccoloist across Canada. Allison is a sessional lecturer in flute at the University of Saskatchewan Department of Music. Allison has also served as a woodwind sectional instructor for the Saskatoon Youth Orchestra and frequently presents guest masterclasses for the Saskatchewan Band Association. In her teaching, Allison encourages both physical and mental health, a sense of community rather than competition, and a focused and efficient method of practice. Allison has been recognized for her passion and education to teaching, for which she has received the RCM Gold Medal Award as a distinguished flute teacher. Allison has been heard on CBC and BBC radio broadcasts as principal flute of NYO Canada. Welcome, Allison. It's good to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on. Um, Allison, I like to start all of my interviews with the same question. And that is, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what led you down the path of being a musician? So I kind of like most people started taking piano lessons at a young age. I enjoyed playing the piano, but uh, the way my parents tell the story, I started asking for a flute when I was six years old. Don't actually remember having a conscious decision that that's what I wanted to do, but I started asking for one. And after a few years of realizing that this wasn't one of my phases, um, they ended up purchasing me a flute and I've been taking lessons and studying ever since. Wonderful. Um, and so you hold the principal flute position with the SSO. How has that been moving back to Saskatoon, playing with your hometown orchestra? Was that ever in the plans or no? It's It's been so much fun coming back to Saskatoon. I was here up until high school and then I moved away to study in university for my undergrad and my master's. Um, the way orchestral musicians typically go about it is we throw our hat in the ring on a number of different auditions uh, and freelance musicians can play with different orchestras and things like that. And I auditioned for the Saskatoon Symphony and it happened to be the one that worked out, which is amazing. It kind of feels like it was written in the stars sometimes that I was yeah. able to come back here. Uh, and, and I'm really happy to be back. Oh, that's wonderful. So are you playing with folks that you knew growing up in Saskatoon or not so much? 
There is a good amount. There's a lot of people who have spent their years developing their career and, and building the musical communities here, like some of our uh, string core members, some of our woodwind core members, our brass players. They've been here for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, some of them, which is amazing to see the dedication that they've put into their craft. Uh, so there is a good amount of overlap from people that I worked with um, starting out in the youth orchestra and taking lessons and things like that. So it's nice to now come back as more of an established professional um, and, and be able to work with them in that capacity now. Mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds so wonderful. So I'm having you on the podcast because you're premiering um, for the opening of the season 92 up to her waist with the SSO in the next few few weeks. So can you tell us more about this work? Have you been able to talk with the composer during the process of preparation? Or has it been from an angle of never having heard the work before? So this is a new composition. The concert that we're doing is for our opening night concert, and it will actually be a world premiere, which is very exciting for me. Uh, it's also the first concerto that I will be doing in our large auditorium space so in TCU Hall because I joined the orchestra the year everything shut down with COVID so we played a number of concerts in that hall but then we majorly scaled back um, during COVID to operating mostly out of church uh, churches and smaller venues and things like that so I'm excited very much to play it in in a large venue for it to be a world premiere as well I haven't spoken to Christos Hatzis yet uh, what I have done is the conductor who will be leading that concert, Judith Yan. I've spoken with her several times communicating about different things within the score and getting her interpretation of it uh, and combining that with my interpretation and seeing if we can come up with kind of a, a mutual ground to, to present this work with. Um, and at, at some time I, I hope to be able to speak with Christo speak, and just show my gratitude for writing such a beautiful work for flute. Um, and the one thing that he's done so especially well is provided a huge amount of detail into the score. So when I look at a piece of music like this that hasn't been performed or recorded before, I, I look at what the composer has kind of indicated in terms of direction. And I am able to get so much shape, uh, detail and musicality from what he's written in the score. And so I would love to be able to play for him and see, have I brought it to a sense of accuracy from what you imagined or what could I do more to kind of emphasize those details? Yeah, absolutely. I think that really helps in a new work is having so much, you know, detail and also even just the knowledge that like, oh, I can contact the composer and ask. Yes, yes. That's there. something we can't do with, you know, Beethoven, Mozart. <laughs> Exactly. And I think composers have actually added more detail as the years have gone on. And, but it's such a such a benefit to have a composer that's currently writing so that you can reach out to them and clarify things and, and get their feedback on how it is you've interpreted something. Absolutely. So for those listening to the podcast, can you let us know, how do you prepare a piece when you can't ever listen to a recording you can't listen to it as a whole with the full orchestra and that context. Does listening to recordings play a large part in learning a piece or because I imagine you have to approach it differently when, it, when it's something that doesn't have any recordings? It's a, that's a really great question. This is the first work I've done since it is a world premiere where there is no documentation of other people's interpretation on it. 
the first thing I do almost with any work, whether or not there's recordings, is I take a look at the score. So for our non-musicians, um, it's a breakdown of my part and then every other part that would be played within the orchestra. And so I can see key points in when am I alone? When are there connection points between myself and the orchestra? Where are there um, more thick passages? For example, many, many instruments playing. When am I going to have to consider uh, projection versus when am I going to be able to play around a little bit more with the softer dynamics, all those different types of things. So studying of the score is crucial. Uh, I still am a huge advocate for taking lessons. I take lessons with some long-term mentors of mine. And I recently uh, took this piece to the one of the professors I worked with at the University of Ottawa and got her interpretation. And and that was very, very helpful, not only in the sense of this is a work that hasn't been recorded before, but this is a different job than I normally do. So playing principal flute in the orchestra, I very often will have solo passages, whereas this is a, a voicing of a specific musical story that the whole thing should be featured. Mm. Whereas it's kind of putting on a different hat, if that makes an example, from very often in the orchestra, I'm a voice amongst many, and the goal is to either blend or uh, add a certain color to the soloist hat where that is a pr predominant voice that needs to be brought out, not all the time, but most of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you find it liberating and exciting to be working on a new work that hasn't been premiered yet and doesn't have a recording because sometimes it's because you get to be the original interpreter of that piece of music it's very exciting I think I what I've been doing in in the past couple of weeks and getting to know this piece is trying on as many different styles and characters as I can I use the analogy with my students as um tone colors almost being like shades of paint in a in a painter's palette where you don't want to use just one shade of blue. It's, it might be a beautiful blue, but you want to have enough dimension and texture and contrast um, in the colors that you use within your sound that, that it really tells an amazing story. So I've, I have full, every different um, variation of my sound that I've tried within this piece. And now I get to kind of select which one I feel is the most appropriate in portraying um, Christos Hatzis, his, um, his story. Yeah. So that's so interesting. So when preparing a concerto with an orchestra, do you have ways of mentally preparing for that performance? What some people might not know is that you don't get months and months rehearsing with an orchestra. You usually get a few rehearsals before that big performance. So how do you prepare in advance for something like that? So what I typically do is I, first of all, like I mentioned before, is I study the score. So I find out which areas need to be completely rhythmic, completely solid, because you don't have one person following you. You have um, up to 100 people kind of following you. So there needs to be certain places where you're absolutely clear and rhythmic. But to balance that, there's also areas that might be unaccompanied or cadenza style where I can take more liberty. I can use more shape and kind of break out of the mold of rigid rhythmic formality. Um, in terms of ensemble and putting it together, 
this is a, a place where depending on the work, uh, I will play with recordings. So it, I do have what we call a MIDI track, which is a computer produced uh, interpretation of the music with no kind of human fluctuation, no... Very uh, robotic. Yes, yes. Um, and that can be very helpful to have as a tool. I wouldn't necessarily perform under that, um, that approach, but I can use that to say, you know, if I use this type of speed going into this next section, how is that going to work in terms of ensemble? Uh, so there's that component to the technical preparation. You mentioned mental preparation a little bit. What I do is I try to simulate a performance as many times as possible. Mm -hmm. So I will play the piece um, unaccompanied for as many different ears as I can get a hold of. I wrote my husband into it all the time since he's a he's a singer as well, a musician, so I can get his feedback. I play with uh, for teachers and mentors to see um, what their feedback would be and to also give myself the own, to simulate as many performances as possible so that I can get a sense of how consistent a certain passage is. So there's certain passages that are difficult and I need to make sure that I can get that 10 out of 10 times not just five out of 10, so that the one performance opportunity I actually have uh, will be successful. Sort of simulating all of those experiences so that you can, you know exactly what it's. Yeah, and, and allowing for um, human error, right? Allowing that um, something could happen and it might be a distraction around me. So like something in the hall, for instance, mm -hmm. or um, I could make a mistake, which is perfectly normal and how to recover from that. Or there could be, I don't know, any number of, of errors that you can anticipate going into it are, are really helpful when you consider performance because, you know, we practice to achieve 100%, but I'll be happy with 90% in performance yes. <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there anything in the work that you're premiering that stands out to you that you love? Could you let us in on the... Absolutely. On the so the work kind of opens with an unaccompanied phrase. So I have complete artistic license for about three bars to kind of make a musical statement and there's a lot of back and forth between the orchestra where I'll have some moments that are unaccompanied, more cadenza style, and then the orchestra will join and we'll kind of pass it back and forth. Uh, there's some extended techniques also, which is really nice when um, current composers incorporate those into, into our playing. For example, they use flutter tonguing, mm -hmm. which is a flute technique where you kind of buzz your tongue at the same time of sound production. And it kind of gives a cool percussive sound uh, and there's also the use of harmonics, which offers kind of a unique sound color. Uh, for the musicians, I will kind of use the fingering of a standard pitch and then overblow it to simulate a different pitch. And it, it's a specific method of getting a unique color. So yeah. you get kind of a different tone color than you normally would on the flute. I'm curious, do you know where the title came from? I do. Yes. Um, it has historic meaning to Randy and Terry. Oh. So uh, Randy was an avid gardener. She absolutely loved gardening um, throughout her life. I think Terry said she was happiest when she was gardening. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm trying to remember the exact circumstances. But uh, on one occasion, Terry saw Randy and she was amidst many, many flowers. It might've been in a field or it might've been in her garden. 
And um, he described her to a close friend as being up to her waist in lupins, which is the title of the work. And yes. I actually hadn't heard of the specific type of flower of lupins before. And I've since looked it up and, and been very interested in it. And uh, so it, it's very personal to her family and her, her longtime husband, Terry. Oh, I love that. I love that story. And that's, it's beautiful to have that sort of image to, to attach onto when you're, when you're preparing mm -hmm. a piece of music. Um, I love descriptive titles because concerto number one or sonata <laughs> opus 24 exactly doesn't give as much visual. So sort of shifting our questions now, can I ask how has your job shifted during the pandemic? This has been an interesting topic of discussion with um, musicians that I've been having on the podcast. Was teaching moved completely online for you? How did you find alternative ways to make music when our usual streams like tours and concerts and all of that weren't available? So I describe my life during the pandemic as very, very lucky. Uh, we shut down initially, and when I say we, I mean the, the Saskatoon Symphony. We shut down initially in March to kind of fo follow safe protocols. But as of September, we were up working and producing concerts on an almost bi-weekly basis. So a lot of our community outreach was limited. Like we do a huge round of toddlers concerts, school concerts, and seniors concerts. Mm -hmm. Those because we had to make sure we were following safe protocols were limited but we operated out of a church we reduced the number of the members in the orchestra so um mostly core members additional strings we did a quite a big distance so i think at the most it was two to three meters um between musicians which for wind players normally were side by side that's a big um, difference it's a huge difference and it was difficult initially because your hearing is just a little bit distorted versus what you normally do. Um, but we were producing concerts. So we had the ability to learn music and perform it on a regular basis. Um, all of my teaching did go online. I, I started at the university the fall following the pandemic. And so I had quite a few students who were preparing graduate recitals that we didn't meet until they were in convocation hall doing their dress rehearsals. Um, and so of course in that, um, space we could spread out safely, but it was so different, um, going from seeing them on a little screen to being able to hear their sound and hear their musical shaping in, in all of its glory. Absolutely. And in such a beautiful space, Convocation mm -hmm. Hall is such a lovely place to, to perform. Um, I'm curious for, because I, I mean, I taught online, the piano is a little bit easier on Zoom because of it has more of that mid-range. The flute is not as easy on Zoom because Zoom sort of cuts out that top end. How did you make that work? A lot of trial and error. It's certainly not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy to be back in person and, and I play it pretty safe. So we distance and I wear masks and we stay and try to allow for as much air circulation as possible. There was a lot of trial and error and sometimes because you're not only working with your equipment, but you're working with equipment in somebody else's home. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you're just you're talking through things because the Zoom or the audio will, will pick up your voice more easily than it'll pick up flute. Like there was a good solid week where it just something shifted in my computer. I could never figure it out, but it wouldn't 
it wouldn't um, project two thirds of my playing. Like it would give you a third and then cut out. And (laughs) so uh, it's, it's not ideal. We made it work. A lot of students did continue to take lessons and they had that in their life and they tried to have goals to work towards and and songs to play. And we had a few online masterclasses where we would play and it would simulate the, the art of performing a little bit for them, but it's, it's a whole level of appreciation now to have in-person teaching, playing, performing back. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, As our listeners heard earlier in your bio, maintaining mental and physical health is really important in your teaching practice. Can you tell us more about how you encourage um, good mental health among your students? Yes. And this is a really interesting topic because um, we work one-on-one with our students. Like in the course of a year, I'll see my university students 24 one-hour lessons which is a good amount of one-on-one time. And you build a very um, special relationship, working on your art and and pushing through your um, roadblocks when it comes to learning and things like that. Uh, So a lot of students do open up to me. They, they very often will break down in lessons. Like if there's, if there's something frustrating in their life, whether it's school or family or one, one relationship or another. Uh, The one thing I do remind myself of all the time is that I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a medical professional. Um, So what I do is I continue to recommend that students reach out and put resources into place. Mm -hmm. And by resources, I mean everything from a therapist or a counselor, from good sleep habits, good eating habits, Um, if you decide with your medical professional that a medication is right for you, that's something that a lot of people see as a resource, uh, regular exercise is a big one. Um, monitoring your relationships. Do you have healthy, positive people in your life? Um, and so I try to get students to have as many of those resources as possible on hand Mm -hmm. so that if one of them goes, or if two of them go, or you're really struggling, Uh, you still have other things to turn to. And I think the biggest key point is to have them on hand before you really, really need them. Don't wait until you're at rock bottom to try and start finding a a counselor or even a family member who you can talk to. Mm -hmm. Because it does take time. And you know, those relationships, um, you know, it might take you a couple counselors to find one you really connect with. And you want to be doing that not at your lowest points. You want to be doing that um, when you're feeling great and, and you have the um, the ability to kind of explore a little bit more. So I, I'm open with them about the resources I have in my life. And I just, uh, the university, the University of Saskatchewan does offer resources in terms of mental health to students. So I just continue to encourage them to to have as many positive things in their life as possible ongoing. My husband has this great um, phrase, he says, because we're super like we love our therapists, um, that it's almost like a vaccine for mental health. Like it's not gonna you're not immune to it. It's not gonna you might not get um, you might not not get sick at all. But it it gives you the best fighting chance and it reduces the severity. Yes, you know. Um, So so I think uh, I just keep encouraging students to to put resources into place. Absolutely. And it's such a unique experience to be a performing musician. It's so vulnerable. There's so much emphasis placed on perfection and Mm -hmm. 
when you're up on stage, you know, it feels very vulnerable to be a single person performing rather than in the comfort of a choir or an orchestra or a a wind ensemble. And so it's, it's a different mental ballgame. It is. And especially throughout the pandemic, like Mm -hmm. the best of us were struggling and to try and ask a hundred percent of your body and your mind during a stressful period is a lot. Right. And so also kind of just the, um, the compassion that you can offer yourself of, I'm going to do the best that I can. And it might not be a hundred percent, but it's sure better than doing nothing, you know? And I think because a lot of those community building resources were, were taken away, like at least for me, like I, I sing in and direct choirs and we were online and it's like, you just don't get that same experience. So you can't exactly. expect yourself to be a 100% when your support and your community is, you know, not not there physically in person. Oh, exactly. And even for my students who presented graduate recitals, like I I can't imagine having to do that when I was in school, but they had all the stress of playing on a stage with none of the benefit of, ha- of having your family there cheering or having your friends bring you flowers after or going out for a celebration. So so the the balance of things was so um, out of whack, you know, and and I, I'm so proud of those students who were able to do that. And I know that I, that would have been super challenging for me as well. So um, mm-hmm. it was one of the most odd experiences I've ever had as a musician performing an entire concert for my camera and a microphone. And I was like, Supposedly there are people on the other end that are going to listen to this. <laughs> Yeah. And like, we did everything possible, right? Like there was, there used to be little chats that you could be like, go this person, like you're a rock star. And, and it was something, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it wasn't the experience we were going for, but it it worked temporarily. Yes. Yeah. And glad to be back. I'm sure. Oh yes, All of the live audience. And there's just, there's nothing like it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, one musician that I really admire once told me that being a musician means that you can never do just one thing. So do you find it challenging to balance that of being a performer, a teacher, professor? Do you find that it's easy to oscillate between the many hats you wear as a musician? This is a really interesting question because all of the teachers I've ever worked with have also been performers themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think that model of performer evenings and weekends and teacher during the day was just always in place from as early as I can remember. I think even if I didn't have to, even if I made a million dollars, I think I would still want to teach because what teaching offers you is problem solving from many different angles because you're trying to supply each individual student with as many solutions as possible and the specific solution that'll work for them. And what this does when you do it for hours every day is it forces your own brain to assess your own playing through that lens. So when I'm working through a tough passage or if there's one area of my playing, like I'm struggling with my sound that day, I can think to myself, what is it that I'm doing and how many resources, how many angles can I approach this to try and solve a specific issue? So they really do go hand in hand. It's definitely a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Um, I was telling somebody recently, not so much in fitting, um, fitting everything into the hours of the day, but in utilizing mental focus, because uh, 
me personally, I don't have 12 hours of peak mental focus a day, nope. especially if I'm performing <laughs> that evening. So, and I have to prioritize, you know, my own practice, which is very mentally taxing and my own performance, which is mentally tiring, but yet I still want to give my students a hundred percent of my attention. So juggling it is tough. Uh, I think you build up stamina as you go. There was a, the first couple of years, and, and this was in part to teaching online, I found it very tiring mentally to teach for five hours and then do my own practice and then go to a rehearsal or something. It, it is draining and it is tough, but I think the, the teaching is actually a benefit mm -hmm. to most performers um, if, if you're able to view it in that positive lens. Absolutely. So we're kind of coming up to the end of our time together, but can you tell us what, I mean, other than the beautiful concerto that you'll premiere, what are you working on right now? What's getting you excited? I always have a few projects going. Um, one thing that's an ongoing project is working on my, what I call my toolbox, which is um, the many different aspects of flute playing that are technical. So sound production, articulation, intonation, finger technique, and making sure that I have those in shape and they're currently working well and I'm working to improve those. So at least 50% of my practice goes to that, mm -hmm. what some people call fundamentals or basics or, or staying in shape. Um, and then the other things are the current concerto I'm doing, I've done a few of these projects recently. And so I kind of make them my main focus. The other thing is that we're going into a full season. We start our season September 1st. Uh, and we're doing a number of really large, really like bucket list type works um, that have uh, exposed highly intricate flute parts, for example, <laughs> um, like Stravinsky's Firebird. Um, we're doing Scheherazade. We're doing Ravel's Bolero. Um, we're doing a couple new movie scores, which are so much fun to play, but very, very hard Yeah. because like I was saying before, like there's no leeway rhythmically, like mm -hmm. you either fit with the movie or it shifts and then everyone can see. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm working on select passages from those big works and then just making sure that I equip myself with as many tools in my toolbox so that when something new comes on my stand, because the uh, repertoire can shift as you go, uh, I'm ready to tackle it um, as best as possible. Yeah. Well, that sounds mm -hmm. great. It's been such a pleasure getting to chat with you. We're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions. There are no wrong answers. Just go with your gut. And if you want to pass on one, go for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, can you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician? I don't think so. <laughs> I can point to moments recently where I think I've gotten confirmation that this is what I want to be doing. Mm. Like I kind of mentioned earlier, I don't remember making a choice. Like I just wanted to play the flute. I must have seen it in a movie or something and thought it looked cool and pretty and shiny. Um, but I don't remember actually choosing the instrument. It's just always something I wanted to do. What I do what I can speak to is moments that I, that I believe I've been reassured that this is for me because I was watching um, a live orchestra concert recently this summer um, where there was this phenomenal jazz singer called Dee Daniels. She was absolutely incredible and, and an absolute um, prodigy in the sense of performing. Mm. 
mm-hmm. like understanding performing as its own kind of art. Mm-hmm. Um, and feeling like when I hear, when I heard her sing that I was absolutely in the palm of her hand, like she was like absolutely suspending me in time. I, I was, I had no idea where a phrase was going to go. I had no idea how long it had been going. I just knew I was right there with her and seeing her do that and knowing those moments are some of my favorite moments in my life being captivated by artists. Um, and knowing that if I'm, if I'm able to succeed in my career, that I will be able to do that for somebody else. Hopefully that's the goal. Right. Um, so that's a moment that I was reassured that this is in fact the, the career for me. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing, there's nothing like that. I remember uh, one of my mentors calling it the something special. Yes. When you go to a concert and I, and I go, it's just, uh, uh, she goes, the something special. And I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a concept too, that's talked a lot about in specifically emerging and young professionals called flow, where you're so into the mental focus, like you're in that peak zone of enough stimulation and stress that you're working really hard, but not too much that you're shaking your way off the stage kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had never really experienced it through somebody else's music. Like I've gotten into that focus myself, but, but it was an interesting experience. And it was just at this point in my life. And I've been playing for close to 20 years now where somebody else had me tapped into it. And I was just like, that's an, that's a whole other level of artistry. Yeah. Oh, that sounds beautiful. (laughs) Do you have a favorite piece to perform? That's an interesting question. I'm at the point in my career where almost everything I'm playing is new to me. Oh, that's wonderful. Which is great because everything is exciting and everything's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I have colleagues that have said to me, oh, we've played this 15 times. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. <laughs> almost everything I play is new for the first time. There's a few pieces, um, like some of the Mozart concertis that were on audition lists when I was taking auditions that I've played many times. Uh, I have specific pieces that I hope to play, Mm. like a bucket list of pieces. And one of them would be the Mozart flute and harp concerto. Yes. Yeah. That I walk down the aisle to that, that like forever will have a special place in my heart. Um, And I'm absolutely fascinated by uh, composition from female composers or previously marginalized composers. So what I try and get my students at the university to do is program recitals exclusively of those works. Um, and so there's there's some fantastic composers like Cécile Chaminade, Lily Boulanger, um, Nadia Boulanger. Um, there's one, Anna Bonn. I don't know if I said Milbonis already, but um, yes. there's just so much creativity and artistry that's out there. And I I get a little bit of a thrill um, in digging for it and finding these gems of pieces in our repertoire that, that aren't standard, but that should be and can be. Absolutely. And that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what got this podcast started was that, Mm -hmm. that sense of digging for the, the repertoire and, and performing repertoire that like you said, should be part of our canon that mm-hmm. isn't necessarily always part of, of the standard repertoire, but that's wonderful. I love that. Um, now, have you ever been given bad career advice and what was it? 
I don't know if I've been given bad career advice. The one phrase that I think has passed around a lot in conservatory or artistic training institutions like uh, dancers, actors, painters, musicians is if you can do anything else, if there's anything else you can picture in the world yourself doing, do it. Um, oh. And and I've heard that like fifth, like, Many, many times. But I don't like that at all. <laughs> no, no, it's terrible. Because I think the perception of, of musicians and, you know, I graduated with my master's and freelanced for three years. And, and I'm still very lucky to have the position I have right now. Very few musicians. Like, I think for me, there's 24 jobs in Canada that I would qualify for. And I have one of them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, very few musicians get one full-time job to supply all of their income. Yeah. Very, very few. Um, and if we kind of taught emerging artists in any field that, you know, you may not make all of your income from your art, but that does not mean you are not successful. That does not mean your art is not valid or worthy. And that does not mean it's not important to have that in your life. Mm -hmm. So because what I, I've seen from even people as high as the doctoral level is they do their training, they try to get a full-time job for a few years and they can't, not because they're not good enough, but because of the circumstances, there might not be jobs available and they end up quitting. Mm. Uh, and we lost a lot of great musicians during the pandemic that way. It's just there, it wasn't sustainable. And so I think if we had the perception that having music and having your art in your life has value, even if it does not provide your sole income, uh, I think we'd have a lot more community musicians. I think we'd have a lot more, maybe even high level amateur musicians or teachers in communities. Uh, and I think there's so much, so much power in that, in having people in, in the community who do it just because they love it. And, and I know there, there is a certain level of privilege involved. Um, if you're working many, many jobs just to get by, you might not have the time, but, uh, but there's value in art, even if it's not your sole career. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And maybe you just answered my next question, which is <laughs> what's the best musical or career advice you can pass on to up and coming musicians? <laughs> oh, I love this question. Um, I would say two things. One is take the risk. Mm -hmm. Every time, take the risk, throw yourself out there. It hurts. I've been stung as many times as everybody else, but you pick yourself up and you keep going. Um, and two, and I, my husband will laugh if he listens to this, uh, I saw it on a TikTok. So <laughs> this is like 10 out of 10 business advice or career advice yeah. is, um, in order to get the level of success you want, you're going to have to double your level of failure. Mm. And it kind of goes hand in hand with take yeah. the risk is, is put yourself out there because most of the, like most of the circumstances of us not succeeding provide a huge amount of learning. Yeah. Um, and, and they shape us as individuals. And sometimes you, you see how important something is to you when you're willing to do it just for the sake of doing it and not for the external validation or the, the outcome. And it's, it's great to get that validation every once in a while. I think we need some of it to, to keep going, but, but don't let what traditionally would be labeled as failure hold you back from potentially 
getting the job of your dreams. Like I couldn't have gotten a job as principal flute in my hometown if I was worried about um, failing the audition because that was that was a, a potential outcome when I went right. to the audition was like I could fall flat on my face and and it would sting really bad because it would have been a job that I really wanted but um but I'm I'm here and and we're more resilient than we give ourselves credit for and um and sometimes you have to prove that to yourself yeah absolutely and my last question for you is what are you listening to right now Hmm. Uh, so lots of Christos Hatsis yes, <laughs> on, on my little MIDI track. Um, I listen to so many different types of music. I don't like um, being put in a box of only um, high, high level classical music all the time. Oh, like certainly. I love, yeah, yeah. I love a wide spectrum of, of music. So I turn on the radio and just listen to like whatever Lizzo is going on with and um, yeah. gotta love her. And uh, Broadway musicals are one of my all-time favorite things. Uh, I mentioned my exercise routine. It's a huge thing and keeps that uh, keeps my body healthy when I'm playing for long periods of time. And, and I love having a playlist of just like pump up music that'll get me going. Um, in terms of classical music, I've been listening to a lot in our upcoming season. Like I mentioned, uh, Bolero, Scheherazade, Firebird, that type of thing. Every once once in a while, I get like a huge Dolly Parton craving and, <laughs> <laughs> and listen to her. Um, yeah, a little bit of everything. Yeah. I love that. I'm always curious to what other musicians are listening to. And so far, when I asked that question, I've got, I haven't gotten the same answer twice. So it's, it's been lots of fun to hear, you know, what everyone's listening to. It's great. Um, yeah. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Allison. Can you let our audience know where they can find you and know about the exciting things that you're doing? I think the best place would be on the Saskatoon Symphony website, um, the Saskatoon Symphony Facebook page and their Instagram. Uh, those would be the best places to find me. Perfect. And I will have all those linked in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for coming on and wish you all the best of luck in your upcoming performance. Thank you so much. And there you have it. That is my interview with Allison Miller. I hope you enjoyed it. I will have links to all the references if you go to oamusicstudios.ca slash podcast or on the SSO website via concertstream.tv. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for the upcoming show and hear Up to Her Waist in Lupins, played by Allison and the SSO Orchestra under the baton of Judith Yan. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. If you want to show some love for the podcast, you can leave us a five-star rating or review to help other people find the show. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials and oamusicstudios.ca. Here is a sneak peek of the beautiful playing by Allison Miller and the SSO in last season's concert, Chevalier's Paris. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
Thank you.